Join women passionate about agriculture and food at the upcoming Advancing Women in Agriculture Conference being held March 17th through 19th, 2024 at the Hyatt Regency in Calgary, Alberta. Re-energize and re-engage while listening to leaders in the food and agriculture industry tell their stories. You can network and make connections while learning tips and tricks that will help you meet your goals. For more information and to register, head to the link in today's show notes. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong, but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch, or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today you'll meet Katie Steer. Katie is an entrepreneur and co-owner of Wild Earth Farm in Vermont. In addition to raising grass-fed beef and lamb with her husband, Ben, she is busy reimagining how we as humans can live well on this earth. To cover the costs of their newly established farm, Katie and Ben have diversified their operation through things like Airbnb rentals while building infrastructure and herds, later adding wool products and women's retreats, utilizing their skills gained in marketing and valuing their quality of life. I am very excited for you to meet Katie and hear her incredible story of how a vegan in college is now raising grass-fed beef and lamb on their newly established farm. Before we get to Katie's episode, I wanted to give you all an update and keep you in the loop of what is happening in the month of March 2024. We are celebrating a big anniversary here at the Rural Woman Podcast. We are turning five Five years old, I cannot believe it. We have been on on the air, on the line for the last five years. The Rural Woman podcast launched March 22nd, 2019. So we are going to have some birthday celebrations throughout this month. So if I can encourage you to check us out on social media, you can check out our socials at the Rural Woman Podcast or my personal page at Caitlin Dubin. We are going to be sharing a bunch of stuff this month. So stay in the loop. One of the things I know we are going to be doing together as a community at the end of the month, we are going to have an online meetup. So all of the friends and fans of the show can come together and we can have a little little coffee chat, a little happy hour to all come together and celebrate 
five years of sharing the incredible stories of women in agriculture. So stay tuned for that. Follow us on social media or sign up for our newsletter through wildrosefarmer.com. All of those links are in the show notes. So be sure to stay in the loop of what's happening for our fifth birthday, our fifth anniversary celebration. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Katie. Katie, welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to dive into your story like I was chatting before we hit record. I've done a deep dive on all things Katie, and I'm excited to share your fascinating life with the audience and all of the good stuff. So let's dive right in, Katie. Tell us who you are and where you're from and all things Katie. Sure. So I'm Katie Steer, and I... I'm currently and hopefully forever in central Vermont raising grass-fed beef and lamb with my husband. I'm from Rhode Island and lived sort of in Ireland and then California, then back in Rhode Island. And then we found our dream farm here. And yeah, we've, we bought the farm two years ago and we bought it 0% down with a USDA loan. And we've just been on this adventure of like, okay, how do we make this work? So we have two Airbnbs on the farm. We live in our Airstream and we rent out our house and we're sort of just always coming up with new ideas on how to be small farmers and make a living in this day and age. That's amazing. Well, and you, you're no stranger to agriculture. It was kind of in your blood. So give us your background in agriculture and kind of where this dream of the farm came from. So I grew up on a seventh generation dairy farm in Rhode Island which had actually gone out of business in the 70s before I was born. And I grew up with my dad and my grandpa adamantly telling me that you cannot make a living farming anymore. And so it just wasn't even in my brain that that was an option at all. So I ended up in Silicon Valley doing marketing communications for a commercial bank. And I worked in a literal sea of gray cubicles and something was just missing from my life. Like it just didn't feel right. And I could just feel that farm calling me to it. And so even though my dad, again, 20 years later was adamantly telling me that it wouldn't work, I decided to quit my job, intern at Polyface Farm in Virginia and move back to Rhode Island and start a farm. Right. It's so interesting to me. I didn't grow up in agriculture. So knowing the story of like, or hearing other generations saying like, you can't make a living off of farming and whatever. Obviously that stems from the eighties and the seventies and, you know, times when farming was really hard on a wider scale. And I feel like parents never forgot that. And it doesn't matter what generation it is. I feel like there's always those parents and that family that is always there saying like, you should have other options and you should do a backup job just in case, which is really interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, I think my dad had to make the decision when he was like 16 or 17, whether to close the farm down or not. And I just think that's a decision that has sort of like lived with him for his whole life and maybe like eaten away at him a little bit. And it's definitely a Yeah. I mean, after however many hundreds of years of there being dairy cows on that farm, he had to make the decision to close it down because it just wasn't working anymore. So yeah, I think you brought up a really good point there. 
Yeah. Well, it's the legacy behind it, right? Like whatever generation you are on the farm to hear, you know, you're the generation that has decided not to move forward with it. I think that would eat anybody up. But obviously, you have to do what's right for your family. And you moved on and you went to Silicon Valley and you had, you know, a corporate job. And, you know, when I had, I would say my, I always say like my quote, real job, that was something that I know my parents and other members of my family were super proud of because that was like, those were the jobs that you thought of and that you kind of dreamed of. So, What was it like sharing with your family that this wasn't going to be the path you were taking anymore and you were going back to your farming roots? So neither of my parents went to college and I was sort of like the first one of my generation and my family to leave and go to college and then move across the country for a job. And that conversation with my dad ended up with him hanging up on me and like telling me that I absolutely was not moving home and (laughs) starting a farm because it wasn't going to (laughs) work. I, my parents are divorced. So my mom isn't on the farm. And so I think she was just like, cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's interesting, right? And I think everybody who has been off of a farm and then has gone on to a farm has had probably somewhat similar conversations with their families and saying like, hey, this is what I'm planning on doing. And they think we are absolutely insane. Yeah. <laughs> so Katie, you your journey into being a farmer and now growing grass-fed beef and lamb, this isn't something that maybe you yourself would have thought you were doing however many years ago uh, due to the lifestyle that you were leading. So share that story with the audience because it's a very interesting one. So my freshman year of college, I was a total homebody. Like I got so homesick when I moved one hour to Boston from Rhode Island (laughs) away from home. And I read a book called The Skinny Bitch, which was about how basically you would be cool and skinny if you became a vegan. And I read it with a friend. And so we decided to be vegan together. And there's just this weird culture among vegan plant-based people. It's sort of like a tribe and it gives you a little bit of a sense of belonging to something and a little bit of a sense of like being better than other people. That's not everyone, obviously, but it certainly exists in that population of people. And I just loved it. And so I, for four years, was just on my soapbox. And it's funny because like, I was on my soapbox from Boston and then Silicon Valley, like nowhere near any farms (laughs) about how being a vegan is going to save the planet and la-di-da-di-da, better for everyone. And All the while, my health was completely deteriorating. Like my hair fell out, my spine was degenerating, my face had no color in it. I was starting to deal with depression, which, like, now I know that is also common. And I really only like thought about what I was getting my hair cut, and my hairdresser thought that I had cancer because so much of my hair was falling out. And that's what made me be like, okay, maybe this isn't the best thing for me. I find it really fascinating. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of if you want to be vegan and you want to do it for your own reasons, 
absolutely go for it. If you want to be a carnivore and never eat a vegetable again, because that is how you want to live, all the power to you. I think, you know, we live in a day and age where we should be able to make our own choices, especially when it comes to what food we're eating. But it's interesting that you know, the culture around it can feel very much, you use the word tribe, I would probably use it more of the word cult. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's really interesting to me that there's always the environmental aspect that comes on it. And, you know, if what people are doing and what they're eating is affecting the environment and how it's doing it. And, you know, I feel like every, at least every new year, there's a new documentary that comes out now of what is good for us and what is bad for us. And they can flip-flop from year to year. I always say, like, depending on who's producing this documentary and what company they are backing behind it, this is turning into very conspiracy-type interview, <laughs> which I never t- typically do. Those are, like, the behind-the-scenes. But yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can completely understand of wanting to feel like you're a part of something and something that is so much bigger than us. So, and all- Obviously, when it is affecting your point where, you know, you are physically and mentally unwell, realizing that for yourself and thinking like, how can I do this better? And like, what is what is different? So obviously, you know, your hair falling out is quite shocking. So tell us how you kind of took that and flipped it to now where you are on your farm today. And now you're raising animals for consumption. And I'll just say, I think that the thing that bothers me, I totally agree with you that I think people should be able to eat anything that they want. The thing that bothers me with veganism is I think that like many people are sold a lie, like you're saying with those movies and especially women, because I know so many women now that have just gone through years of ill health from being a vegan. And it's like, they could have just skipped all of that. But yeah, so I started eating meat again and it's really funny because now I basically only eat grass-fed beef and lamb and the only thing I ate for like two years after I stopped being vegan is chicken breast (laughs) I feel like it's like the furthest you can get from a living animal you know (laughs) I lived with a lot of shame that I had stopped being a vegan because you know everything there's this culture of like oh you just weren't doing it right if you were experienced health problems. And so it's not really something that I talked about. I felt like if I was eating animals, then I had to know how they lived. And this was sort of all at the same time that I was working in banking and I didn't really like it. And like, there was no story for my family's farm. And I was worried about the future of the farm. And I I wanted to be more involved in my food. So I decided to quit my job and intern at Polyface Farm. And I went there from my Silicon Valley bubble and I saw the beautiful ecosystem that was being created by animals and cows in particular. And I remember a moment where I thought, oh, this doesn't look like what I've been being told for all these years, that cows are ruining the environment and everything like that. And so that sort of popped the bubble in the belief system that I had. As a person not growing up in agriculture, to be 
you know, quite honest, like the things that you do see on the news or the internet, typically it's not what there's a lot of people doing in agriculture, right? Like you see the one-off horror stories sometimes, but seeing that these animals are actually helping, you know, sequester carbon and all of the things to be able to see that. And then for you to be able to take what you've learned from your internship and bring it to your farm is quite incredible. So take us on the journey of how you found your farm in Vermont and maybe some of the struggles of in finding the perfect place for for you and your husband to start your farm. So I moved home to Rhode Island and started my farm. And if I wasn't so stubborn, I probably would have left very soon after I got there because my family was not happy to have me there. Like I didn't fit into the boxes of I think they sort of imagined me like petting the hay for my dad or there were just, yeah, there were rules that I didn't fit inside. And so things went south very quickly with my family and I still ended up staying there for I think almost four years. And then I found out that my brother, who is not a farmer, had gotten one of the farms. And like I found out months after it had all happened. And that was because when I first moved home, everyone said, you just have to prove yourself. You just have to prove yourself. You just have to prove yourself. And so I was just proving myself. And I realized in that moment that I would never prove myself to them. And so I sort of put out feelers on Instagram and and Rhode Island is a really small place. And so I just told some people and I ended up finding leased land, which was only about like one third of the size of my family's farm. So I moved there and it was really amazing. I had an incredible landlord. She sort of like took me under her wing and just like helped me so much there. And there was a house on the farm that I got to move into. And so I was going along there for a couple of years and my husband wasn't in the picture yet. So I was doing everything by myself and I was raising beef, pork, chicken, turkey, and like going to the farmer's market and doing everything. And I just felt like I had nothing to show for it. Like I had no money and I was so exhausted and I finally started asking myself, like, why am I doing this? And I couldn't come up with any good answer. And so then I met Ben and we're just sort of like talking about, you know, our lives. And I had become really passionate about mental health over the past few years. And so I decided that I was going to go back to school to become a therapist and Ben was renovating an Airstream. So we were going to like travel around the country and figure out where we wanted to live. And I was going to go back to school. And so I told, there was this sort of series of events where I told my landlords I wasn't coming back the next year. I had to put my dog down unexpectedly. And then the next day, Ben and I were at a coffee shop. And like, I knew I wanted a farm someday. Maybe it was in like the three to five year plan because I had no money and I didn't know about the USDA farm ownership 
programs. And we were in a coffee shop and I said to Ben, you do your work and I'll find our farm. Ha ha. And I was on Vermont land link and I found our farm (laughs) and I read the description and it was like almost everything on our dream farm list that we had made. And I was just thinking like, oh, this is going to be millions of dollars. And I got to the bottom and the owners of the farm were making applications and interviewing people and selling it for an affordable amount of money. And so I was like, we have to leave. We have to look these people up. And I just wrote them a really heartfelt letter about what had happened with my family's farm and how like all I wanted was a piece of land to tend to. And they had actually already had a person in mind to buy it. And they ended up meeting with us and we came up and they ended up offering it to us on the spot that day. That's amazing. So how you know, I'm obviously in a different country and our loans and banking systems and, you know, things work differently for us. But I'm interested to know, how did you find out about the USDA loans that were available for you? And how did you move forward with the financing for your farm? First of all, the USDA loans are amazing. And whenever I hear people saying, young people can't buy farms, I'm like, yes, they can. (laughs) So I don't remember. I probably called. There was a woman at the USDA FSA in Rhode Island that's sort of like my adopted mom. Like whenever there were programs that I needed to know about, she would always specifically call me and she was really, really helpful. But yeah, we ended up realizing that we didn't need to have any money to buy the farm. It's still, I remember when we got here and we're like, I mean, we had a lot of a lot of closing costs, but we were like just on this farm without having paid any money for it. <laughs> it felt so funny. But yeah, basically, if you have a farm business that is somewhat successful, you have to have three years of financial and production history. And I mean, it's a beast of an application and it took nine months, but the FSA doesn't loan you money like most people do like what's your credit score and how much money do you make they look at your business plan and your cash flow projections and they determine whether or not they think you can pay the loan and that's how they decide whether or not you get it well and to me that makes sense right like it's not like here's my plan of how i'm going to pay you back this money okay here's the money yeah (laughs) Hey there, friends. I'm Caitlin Dubin, and I am beyond excited to invite you to the Advancing Women in Agriculture Conference being held at the Hyatt Regency in Calgary, Alberta, March 17th to 19th, 2024. As a first-generation farmer, a storyteller, and a community builder, I have had the incredible privilege of sharing the inspiring stories of women in agriculture through my podcast, the Rural Woman Podcast since 2019. With over half a million downloads, we've been able to amplify the voices of women in agriculture, just like yours worldwide. I'll be hosting a presentation titled The B Word. And no, it's not what you're thinking. 
This presentation is all about challenging conventional notions while mixing humor and wisdom and offering a fresh perspective on what success looks like. So mark your calendars, pack your bags, let's come together at the Advancing Women in Agriculture Conference to learn, share, and grow together. I cannot wait to see you in Calgary. So tell us more about your farm now and what you and Ben have built and what you've grown in the last two years. Yeah, sure. So we decided when we moved here that we would just do grass-fed animals because we had 100 acres of pasture here, which seems like a lot then. It doesn't seem like enough now. So we stopped raising pigs and chickens and we got sheep and I think it was like two days before our closing, our bank called us and they said, oh, so it's a joint, we have a joint mortgage. So like the FSA gave us half and then the bank gave us half. The FSA guarantees the bank's mortgage. The bank called us and said, oh, we forgot about these two fees, which were $12,000 more. And so our closing costs were almost $30,000. And we realized in that moment, okay, we need a plan to make more money very quickly. So we're really lucky that the house is pretty nice. So we ended up moving into the Airstream shell that Ben was renovating and airbnb our house. And we have a year that we airbnb too. So that's sort of been, I call it our off-farm job. That's sort of been the thing that has like floated us through the first two years as we've built fences on the whole farm and just water lines and all of our infrastructure and gotten like, yeah, we had to move the farm across New England, which was quite the feat. And we had to sort of like take a dip in our production during those first two years. And so we're going back up. And yeah, this year we're going to be doing a couple of women's retreats, women in wool retreats. And then I also just started making wool dish sponges, which have been really fun and cool. So we're always scheming not to make money here. <laughs> I love that though. Diversification is, I think, the way of the future for a lot of people in agriculture. There is a lot of things in agriculture, and it doesn't matter what country you're in, that you as a farmer really cannot control. But you can diversify to be able to do something different and use different skills that you have. Like you worked in marketing in Silicon Valley. What a great skill to have as a farmer. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think I realized diversification on a farm doesn't just need to mean more kinds of animals. Like I feel really passionately about quality of life as a farmer. And I personally don't feel that you can raise six different kinds of animals very well and also enjoy your life unless you love working all the time. And that's totally fine. I like reading books and swimming in the river and doing fun things too. And so yeah, Airbnb has been amazing because it's just like the house gets cleaned and we're living our lives and we're making money. And the wool sponges, yeah, are also just just feel like an easy and fun thing to do. And those things just sort of like support the farm and the animals. Yeah, for sure. So tell me how you you kind of got into being inspired 
by working with wool. Did you have sheep at your other farm or were sheep a new thing in Vermont? Sheep were a new thing in Vermont. The sheep have been sort of a funny story. So we got the sheep and they're Icelandic sheep and they're really beautiful, but they're also really feral. Like I love my cows and they're peaceful and they come when I call them and the sheep, they're not like that. And they also just felt like they weren't profitable enough. And I had also gotten sick the first summer we were here and I I spent six weeks in bed and we were kind of like, it was just sort of scary because we were like, what if we can't take care of everything that we have on the farm right now? And so we decided we were going to sell the sheep. And then there was a moment this summer when I was out there moving sheep and I was feeling better and I just had the best time. And Ben was like, I had to convince him to sell the sheep. And then he was totally on board. And then I went in and I was like, we can't sell the sheep. I love the sheep. (laughs) Yeah, thank God we didn't sell them. So I take a poetry class and this woman is amazing. And she's always talking about limitless abundance. And part of that felt really good to me. I'm like, yeah, I there's limitless abundance and we all deserve to like live really high quality lives. But then part of that didn't feel good to me because I'm like there are limited resources on this earth. And if we're all just like consuming, 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 that doesn't feel right to me. And then I sort of had this light bulb moment where I was like, there's limitless abundance from things that are gifts from the earth. Like there's limited sunshine and like the grass here in the summer is just growing and growing and growing, like giving and giving and giving. And I was like, and cows, like you have to milk cows because they're always giving you milk. And the sheep, the wool is just like growing and growing. You have to shear the sheep because they're giving you so much wool. And so now I, I've just been thinking a lot about how humans can live life well and sort of like reimagine how we live here. Like how can we receive from the earth instead of taking from the earth? And wool feels like a key to me to that. You can do so many things with wool. Like I have a wool backpack. Literally everything I'm wearing on my body right now is wool. And the dish sponges, I especially like crafting is amazing and knitting is amazing. But I'm excited about what we can use wool for that like like for sponges that we're using in our everyday lives. What can we replace plastic? Where can we replace plastic with wool? So I'm just having a lot of fun thinking about all of that lately. That's amazing. I love that. And I love that that is something that is important to you because I think, you know, as farmers and really entrepreneurs, we can find a way to work every day, all day, if we really wanted to. But to actually stop and smell the roses or shear the sheep, if you will, (laughs) to actually have something in your life that you can do that actually brings that joy back to life in general. And when it doesn't feel like work, then... Mm, I always, I like to say like, and I feel like I learned this the hard way, that a farm will take as much from you as you'll give it, you know, like including everything. It will take and take and take and it's okay to set boundaries with your farm. 
right? Yeah. It feels like taboo to say that in like a a rural farming, like... (laughs) Katie, I think that's a quotable moment. Like it's okay to set boundaries with your farm. (laughs) Yeah. That's a light bulb moment for me because you're right. And I'm just thinking of, of the farmers I know, the farmers that we are. Like you said, it can take absolutely everything away from you. And we we often think that like the farm is giving us everything that we have. But, you know, if we look at it the opposite way, and obviously there's work and things that need to be done. Animals need to be fed, crops need to be grown and all of the things. But to recognize the boundary that we need to set is also super important. Yeah. So you actually recently went to D.C. on a big trip. Can you share with us why you were there and uh, what you were doing? So I went to D.C. as part of a national fly-in with National Family Farm Coalition. And I went with Rural Vermont, which is a nonprofit here in Vermont. And we went to advocate for on-farm slaughter. So in Vermont, that looks like professional itinerant slaughterers come to farms and can slaughter a certain amount of animals per year, which then get taken to a state-inspected facility to be cut up and packaged. So basically, there's guidance from the USDA that was written in 1908 that says, if you raise animals on your farm, you are allowed to slaughter them on your farm. And the USDA has let states, like, basically decide what that means, interpret what that means. And so this is how Vermont has interpreted it. And it's been amazing for small farms that don't have enough animals to have a relationship with the USDA slaughterer or people that don't realize you need to make an appointment at a USDA facility a year or two ahead of time or things like that. And so Vermont actually received a threat from the USDA in 2022, an undated unsigned letter from the USDA that stated basically that they might reinterpret what their guidelines meant. So we went to DC and they did it last year too, to basically get a bill introduced that would take the guideline from guideline into law and change the word raise on your farm to own. So basically like you can buy a cow from the farmer, they can raise the cow and have the cow slaughtered and you can buy the meat. It was really amazing experience because I went with my perspective. I'm like, yeah, on farm slaughter is really cool. I personally think it's really special for like the blood of the animal to go back into your land and you can keep whatever you want from the animal and they don't have to go through the stress of going on the trailer. But I was part of a team of farmers from around the country and there was a farm in Texas, Laredo, Texas. They are three hours from USDA facility and their town is really poor. Like they have double the poverty rate of the average U.S. town. It's a food desert. There's a lot of illness there, like diabetes and stuff, because people don't have access to real food. Like people are eating food from gas stations there. And if they have to drive three hours each way to the slaughterhouse, then their beef basically prices out of what their community can afford. So going to D.C., made me realize just like how important it really is to some farmers across the country. And so what we did is we met with staff members of senators and representatives and we introduced the bill and then the farmers went around and told how it affected them. 
And Peter Welsh in Vermont had decided he would champion the bill last year. And this year, we were able to get a name for the bill and a couple of promising leads for co-sponsors in the House. And it was just really fun to participate in the democratic process and feel like, oh, the federal government, yes, it is this like giant machine, but we as citizens can have an effect on what happens in our country. Yeah, that's so neat. Well, I mean, you know, I was talking earlier about as farmers, we don't have a lot of control over a lot of things. And some of that is, you know, brought on by the respected government and all of the things. But when you're able to use your voice and promote change and do it in hopefully a productive way, like that is really neat to see. I thought it was really funny because when we would go into Republican offices, we would talk about food freedom. And when we would go into Democrat offices, we would talk about food sovereignty. They're both the same thing, right? And and I'm just like, people, can we all realize that like most of us want the same thing? That was just funny to me. Like we we have so much more in common than we don't. And like we can all just work together to make the world a better place instead of hating on each other across the aisle. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Katie, what is next for you and your farm? Something I'm also really passionate about is women. And like the sacredness when women come together and do things like work with wool, which we've been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So the biggest thing that I'm excited about is starting to have women in wool retreats here on the farm, because I feel like when women come together, we heal. And when we heal, we heal the earth. And I really want to be a part of that. That's awesome. For folks who are interested in learning more about your farm and your retreats and your offerings, um, where can they find you online? So our website is grassfedvermont.com and I'm getting better about writing fun blog posts there. And then they can also follow me on Instagram at wildearthfarm underscore. Perfect. I will link all of those in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you. Katie, my last question for you is what's the most rewarding part about being a rural woman for you? Participating in my community. I didn't know what it was like to live in a place where everyone takes care of each other before I came to Vermont. And now I think it's one of the most important parts of life and sort of like an art that has been lost. So yeah, taking care of and being taken care of by my neighbors. That's beautiful. And that is community. That's the definition, right? So good. Katie, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim and Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. 
be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story. Did you know that you can get this same great episode of the Rural Woman podcast ad-free? I get it. Listening to ads during a podcast isn't always my favorite either, but in order to keep the lights and coffee pot on here at the Rural Woman Podcast Studios, they are necessary. I am so grateful to each and every one of my sponsors, but if you yourself would like to skip the ads while supporting the show, consider joining me over on Patreon. Patrons of the Rural Woman Podcast get ad-free episodes starting at Tier 5 on their podcast player of choice each week, plus some other great benefits. Find out more by heading to the link in today's show notes to learn how you can become a patron through Patreon.